0: today we're going to return to our study in the book of proverbs and we'll be in chapter six in just a moment proverbs six you know one of the interesting challenges in preparing sermons is to try to develop ways for the listeners to be engaged in mind and spirit because the point of gathering together is to worship the lord and honor the lord and to learn more of the Scripture and apply it to our lives so we can experience personal spiritual growth. And if we just come together to sing a little and pray a little and listen to a speaker blab for half an hour or so, then it's all rather empty and irrelevant. So the task of the pastor teacher is to first understand the text and then communicate the teaching of the text in such a way that the listeners get it. And one of my favorite passages that that kind of expresses this biblical philosophy of preaching and teaching is in Nehemiah 8. You don't need to turn there. Well, you can read the story later. But Ezra the scribe gathered the people together. They built a large platform big enough for 14 people to stand on. Ezra and 13 other men are are listed there. And then along with the help of the Levites, they helped the people to understand the teachings of God's law. And at the heart of that text, in verse 8, Nehemiah, or Ezra, sorry, Nehemiah 8 8 it says, They read distinctly from the book in the law of God. They gave the sense, and they helped them to understand the reading. Some of the older translations say they caused them to understand. And that's the job of the pastor-teacher, to read from the Scripture to give the sense of what is being said, and to help folks understand. So we declare the word, we expound the word, and we apply the word. So as we come to a text, I'm always looking for ways to express in a nutshell what the text is saying, and we often do that by means of an outline. Outlines are not mandatory, they're just helpful teaching tools. Uh, Alliterated outlines are even easier to remember, but those are more challenging to develop, at least for me, as some pastor teachers seem to be unbelievably good at it. And as I was working my way through our text this week, here in Proverbs 6, I, I actually came up with three different outlines, and I wasn't sure which one would be easiest to remember. So I'm going to give you all three of them. You can take your pick. They all fit the passage. You can choose. I'll tell you the one I selected at the end. But again, in a moment, we're going to read the first 19 verses here in Proverbs 6. But my outlines started out with, with surety, slothfulness, and scoundrels. And then I wasn't sure about the term surety, because it's not very well known. So, so then I came up with money management, motivation, and morality. Well, that was okay, but then I thought a really, really easy outline to remember would be this, loans, laziness, and losers. So as I walked through the kitchen yesterday, Nathan said, Dad, what's your sermon going to be about tomorrow? I said, loans, laziness, and losers. He said, what in the world is that about? Well, we're going to find out in a minute. So I'm going to stick with that one, Loans, Laziness, and Losers. We'll develop our text with that outline in mind. If you like one of the other outlines better, you can use that one when you teach this text to your family and friends. So let's uh, read here in Proverbs chapter 6, the first 19 verses. My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. "'You are taken by the words of your mouth. "'So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, "'for you have come into the hand of your friend. "'Go and humble yourself, plead with your friend, "'give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. "'Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter "'and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. "'Go to the ant, you sluggard. (coughs) "'Consider her ways and be wise.' which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers, perversity is in his heart, he devises evil continually, he sows discord, therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. You know, the text is filled, or the scripture is filled with, with encouragement for us to help our fellow believers. There are many passages in the New Testament that we call one another passages that deal with the way we should treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the Old Testament there were instructions on how to help the poor and the needy and widows and orphans and how money should be loaned to other Israelites and how money should be loaned to foreigners and how all those sorts of things should be handled. So as you read through the scripture you see that generosity and kindness and gracious sharing are all a part of godly living whether you were an Old Testament Israelite or a New Testament disciple of the Lord Jesus generosity and gracious sharing were qualities of godliness all the way through the scripture but in this passage here these first five verses as well as five other places in the book of proverbs solomon warns his son about being involved in what he calls surety and in the biblical use of the word what surety means is to pledge money or goods or partial payment for a larger obligation In other words, it's taking on an obligation to pay something later without really knowing the details of what or how much you might have to pay. The term that we would use in our modern world is to co-sign for a loan. You don't know if or when you'll have to pay, or how much, or for how long. This is fairly common in our world among followers of the Lord Lord Jesus. Lots of people co-sign loans for each other, but Solomon here says, don't do it. Now, some people may protest and say, ah, but this passage says don't co-sign for a friend or a foreigner. It's what he means by a stranger. It doesn't say anything about not co-signing for family. True enough. But remember that Solomon is teaching his children wisdom principles. He is covering all sorts of issues of daily living, from peer pressure to sexual purity to protecting your inner man from temptation to managing money to honoring God with your possessions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He is not addressing every possible scenario or every potential circumstance. Solomon, guided by the Holy Spirit, is teaching wisdom principles to his children so that they can apply to day-to-day living situations. And he is simply saying here, it is unwise to cosign, and if you have, then he says, do everything you can possibly do legally to get out of the obligation. Humble yourself, plead with your friend, do whatever you have to do to deliver yourself, he says. You say, why would that be? Well, I'll give you several reasons why it is probably unwise to cosign. The first one is probably, you may be allowing or enabling someone to borrow beyond their ability to pay. Apparently the creditor thinks so. That's why he wants a cosigner. You may be helping them to buy something that they cannot afford to own. I always remember reading the story years ago that uh, that one of those early generation multimillionaires, John D. Rockefeller... The founder of Standard Oil, 100 and something years ago, in the early 1900s, he was having this big, big, huge gathering of all these businessmen, this big party on one of his yachts, one of his multi-million dollar yachts. And a young man came up to him who was in business and said, Mr. Rockefeller, I'm thinking about uh, about buying a yacht like this one day. He said, "Uh, can you tell me how much the annual upkeep is? Rockefeller said, son, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. You know, there are a lot of things that we can afford to buy that we can't really afford to own. And, and apparently, if somebody comes to you and they want you to co-sign for something, they're either borrowing something beyond their ability to pay, which apparently the creditor thinks that's the case, or they're buying something that they can't afford to own. In, in, in which case, they may very well be outside the will of God in pursuing this thing, and you might be helping them to do it. So be very careful. Solomon doesn't forbid you. He just says it's not really wise. Another issue is that your financial testimony is at stake. There are many admonitions in the scripture regarding keeping your word financially. Psalm thirty-seven, twenty-one says the wicked borrows and does not repay. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5, it's better that you should not vow than to vow and not pay. See, God commands us to keep our financial promises. So be very careful what you commit to do. Then there's a third consideration. Uh, There are better ways, scripturally, to help someone. An interest-free loan, perhaps, which actually is totally scriptural. Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 23 in the Old Testament law, God specifically commanded the Israelites to loan to their fellow Israelites at no interest. And if you're going to co-sign and you're in the kind of financial shape that you're not worried about having to assume the loan, then why not just loan it to them yourself interest-free? Or just give it to them. Give them a big enough down payment so the creditor will give them the loan and you don't have to co-sign. If you're in financial shape to do that, and if you're not in that kind of financial shape, then you probably shouldn't co-sign. So, so there are other options. You know, the second half of the verse I just mentioned, Psalm thirty-seven twenty-one. the wicked borrows and does not repay. The second half of that verse says, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. So if you want to help someone in need, that is wonderful. It is biblical. It's honorable. It's gracious. It's pleasing to the Lord. By all means, do it. Just find another way besides co-signing. That's Solomon's wisdom principle. Then on a related financial topic, uh, Solomon addresses laziness. He says in verse 6, Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. You know, God has ordained to provide for our needs primarily through work. God blesses us in many different ways, and often through the graciousness and giving of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But God has ordained to provide for our needs primarily through work. There was a mom I read about this past week who was very distraught during the summer months, couldn't get her son out of bed in the morning to go do some work and some chores and try and make a little money, do a few things. And she remembered hearing the phrase, the early bird bird gets the worm. So she said to her son one day, you know, son, I want to tell you the story of these two birds. One got up early and he was out there with the sun and he was working away. He had lots of bugs to eat. The other one slept until noon. He was always hungry because he was always sleeping in. What do you think you can learn from that? Her sleepy-eyed son said, well, what that tells me is that the bugs who get up early are more likely to get eaten. (laughs) Say some of our teaching sessions don't always work out the way we were hoping they worked out. But even if your first attempt is unsuccessful... Teach your children that God has ordained to provide for our needs primarily through work. There are dozens of passages that teach this. Solomon here tells his son that laziness is one of the paths to financial ruin. He says in verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come on you. Laziness is one of the paths to financial ruin. And he says, my son, if you want to know how to get things done, Go watch the ants. You know, according to National Geographic, there are 12,000 different species of ants worldwide. Many Old Testament students believe that the type of ant Solomon was watching was the harvester ant, which was very common in Israel. Ants are the longest living insects on our planet. There is the queen ant of one particular species that they say can live up to 30 years, according to National Geographic. Ants hold the record for the fastest movement of a body part in the animal kingdom. The trap jaw ant can close its jaws at 140 miles an hour. The ant is one of the world's strongest creatures in relation to its size. They say uh, most species of ants can carry 50 times their own body weight. And they'll even work together to move objects as a group. I read of a science photography contest. I wish I could have seen the picture. But this science photography contest, one scientist had taken a picture of an ant holding a weight 100 times its own weight while hanging upside down from glass. How'd they do that? I don't know. The BBC reports uh, that that on on, on average a single worker ant in the average ant colony would take 250 naps every day with each nap lasting about one minute so that equates to like four hours and 48 minutes of sleep every day and that also means that as they rotate through as they were watching this ant colony 80% of the workforce in, in the anthill is awake and active at any one time so Solomon says you want to get something done my boy you want to learn how to get something done? Go watch the ants in my school teaching years uh, back in the dark ages in the late seventies I had opportunity to watch some ants move a dead palmetto bug, which is kind of a, a southern version of a cockroach, off of a sidewalk and into their ant hill. I had walked out of class and it was at the, it was at a lunch break, and I happened to look down and there was this these, these two or three ants that were trying to drag this Palmetto bug. they are like a giant cockroach. They're horrifying things, if unless you just love insects. Carol loves palmetto bugs, so yeah, they're just, uh, they just—they just—they were just uh, her favorite insect down there in Florida. So anyway. <laughs> anyway, so she was happy they don't—they can't survive in Montana. And anyway, there was just this, this dead palmetto bug. It was just was laying there on the sidewalk, and that. That, those, that one ant was around it and he was pulling on one leg and other ant pulled on another leg and it wasn't long and I was watching and, and up came the stream of ants. How they communicated, I don't know, I didn't see anybody with radar or walkie-talkies. But somehow or another, the ant knew that the other ant needed help and, and there was a stream of ants that came across the sidewalk. They they all gathered around that palmetto bug, they flipped him over on his back, a whole bunch of them got up a, a, underneath him, they picked him up, and, they're st- and they are carrying him off of the sidewalk. And I stood there and watched for, oh, five minutes or so, and some of the ants would get tired, they would back out, and maybe they're taking their one-minute nap, I don't know. But some other ant would come back in there, and and he would take it, and they just kept going and kept going. They kind of dropped him off the edge of the sidewalk, got him back up on his back again, gathered him up, and they carried him off through the grass headed to the anthill. I thought, wow, that was kind of fascinating to watch. And as I read this passage, and as I thought about my ant observation experience long ago, I thought about six qualities of ants that we should be copying. They're diligent, meaning they're just, they're just hardworking. They're, they're always doing something. They're, they're very goal oriented. They are working for the future, as Solomon said. They are providing her supplies in summer and gathering her food in the harvest. They, they, they're diligent, they are goal oriented, they are very focused. Every worker ant is focused on food gathering. That's their job. That's the way they provide for each other. They, they, are, they are consistent. They always do the same work over and over, day after day after day. No ant goes on vacation and says, I'm tired of dragging palmetto bugs around or gathering <laughs> seeds for whatever. I'm, I'm done. They're just, they're just always there. They're always consistent. They're, they're very disciplined. Nobody's cracking the whip behind them and ordering them to get going. Nobody's barking orders. Solomon said they have no captain, no overseer, no ruler. There's nobody bossing the ants around, but, but, but they are so disciplined at what they do, they're just out there getting it done. And they, they are unified. They're always working together. They're always helping each other. They're always seeing a job and running in it to do it. If one ant gets tired of dragging the palmetto bug, he backs out and some other ant jumps in there and takes his place. So if you want to know how to get things done, go watch the ants. They're diligent. They're goal-oriented. They're focused. They're consistent. They're disciplined. They're unified. That's the way to please the Lord in your work. That's the way for God to provide for you through your work. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the lazy man desires, but has nothing. But the soul of the diligent will be made rich, he'll be blessed. The soul of the lazy man desires, but he has nothing. But the soul of the diligent, God's going to bless. So loans, laziness, and losers... are the losers. The people who are doing things that God hates. And with all of our talk about love in the world today and God's love, it may come as a surprise to some people that God also hates. The apostle John wrote that God is love in 1 John, which is obviously true to anyone who knows Jesus Christ and has been forgiven by him. But the Bible also clearly teaches that there are some things that God hates. And in this text, we see seven things that God hates. In verses 12 to 15, we see a picture of a person who is doing these things that God hates. And then Solomon gives a clear list of the seven activities that God hates. Look at it again in verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers. We kind of wonder what's going on there, but people who have studied Middle Eastern uh, culture in, in ancient days and, uh, and others who have perhaps been in the, the con man world, they, they look at that and say, oh yeah, but you're trying to con somebody. You know, you've got usually a group of people and they're trying to work together. So you're doing all sorts of little signals with your feet and your hands and your eyes to, to your friends and when you think the con is working. That's what he's talking about there in verse 12, so I'm told. I've never been much of a con man, but uh, but uh, I, I certainly better not be, or I'm in the wrong business. But he said, he winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. And then this famous passage, very well-known, people quote it quite often, Six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. And let's look at these seven things. The first one, a proud look. Hebrew students say the word literally means haughty eyes. Haughty eyes are the, are the self-focus that makes someone overestimate himself and underestimate everybody else. People with haughty eyes. Or the proud look, that they are arrogant, they are unteachable, they are rebellious. And they are detestable in the eyes of God because they tend to inspire rebellion and divisions among God's people. You know that God loves humility. God hates those haughty eyes of the person who's stuck on himself. Then secondly, he says, a lying tongue. A lying tongue means to be deceptive in your speech, dishonest in your speech, saying what isn't true or leading others to think something that isn't true because of the way that we portray it with our words. God loves the truth. God hates a lying tongue. Never be deceptive or dishonest. I read a story this week of a store manager who was walking through his, near the checkout lines, and he overheard one of his checkout clerks telling a customer, no, ma'am, we haven't had any for a while, and it doesn't look like it. we'll be getting any any soon, or getting any, any, you know, anytime soon. Well, horrified, the manager came running over to the customer and said, of course we'll have some soon. We placed an order last week. Then after the lady left, the manager kind of pulled the clerk aside and said, Listen, son, never, never, never say we're out of anything. Tell them we've got it on order and it's coming. Now, what was it she wanted? The kid said, Rain? Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, the lying tongue. A proud look, a lying tongue. Thirdly, hands that shed innocent blood of course that is a reference to murder something that god hates the fourth thing a heart that devises wicked plans that is thinking about evil or something evil to do when you have the opportunity planning sin ahead of time some people do that they plan to sin friday night i'm going to do such and such they say this on monday The next Friday night, I'll do it again. Their heart is already devising wicked plans. Number five, feet swift in running to evil. That is, they're eager to sin. They're looking forward to sin. They're excited to sin. They're looking for opportunities to sin. Number six, a a false witness. That is, one who lies in a courtroom setting is generally the way that term is used, or in some sort of legal situation. And then number seven, one who stirs up conflict among the family. He sows discord among brethren. He stirs up conflict among the family. Could be the Lord's people, could be an actual biological family. And I thought, isn't it interesting that, that, that God takes this, this concept of a person who stirs up conflict, destroying relationships among the Lord's people, and he lists that person with the arrogant and the liars and the murderers. Apparently, God's not real thrilled with it. In fact, he says God hates it. Six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. And I want to wind up our thoughts about loans, laziness, and losers by by turning a mirror on ourselves. I want you to think with me for a second about verse 15. After Solomon talks about this worthless person, the wicked man, and all the things he does, he says, "Surely, his, therefore his calamity will come suddenly, calamity meaning disaster, suddenly he will be broken, he'll be crushed, ruined, without remedy, with no cure, with no restoration. You see, the person, Solomon says, who is actively living this lifestyle, of dishonesty and arrogance and planning to sin and eager to sin and excited to sin and blind to the fact that it even is sin. A person filled with self and focused on self and living for self. He, he said that's the path that leads toward disaster, that leads toward brokenness without without healing or restoration. But for we who profess to know the Lord, do we ever plan to sin? Do we look forward with excitement to questionable activities? Are we never tempted to sow a little discord or fudge a few facts or view ourselves with a little bit of superiority as we think of other sins and say, oh, how sad, as we inwardly pat ourselves on the back for thinking that we're not like them? You know, you and I, even as followers of Jesus, there are times... We are guilty of doing things the Lord hates. Yet, by the grace of God, we know the remedy. It is submission to God. It is humility before the Lord. It is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But we have been broken by our sin. We have experienced the remedy, the cure. We have been restored by the grace of God. Three weeks ago, I mentioned the old-time hymn writer Robert Robinson that gave us that great song, "Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing." I love this verse. I'm going to do this. Uh, this I think it's the second verse of the song. He says, "O oh, to grace, how great a debtor! Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, meaning a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it." prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Robert Robinson, as a young man, I think he was 22 years old when he wrote the words of that song. He said, I owe you so much, Lord. Let your goodness chain me to your grace because I am prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, those who are guilty of doing things that God hates are not beyond forgiveness. It's a good thing because you and I are living testimonies of that. May God help us to pray for and witness to our unsaved friends and relatives because we know the remedy. We know the remedy. So let's share it. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a dark world. We live in a world that is in many parts of the world, in many family groups, in many cities, in many homes, in many hearts. They are habitually doing things that you say you hate. And Lord, we know if they stay on that path, they will suddenly be crushed without opportunity for restoration. But Lord, we thank you that you've taken us off that path. And by your grace, you have given us a new heart and a new life and a new focus and a new goal. And yet, Lord, as old-time sinners that are still packing around our sin nature, there, there are days, there are weeks where we're still guilty of some of these things that you say you hate. And I'm thankful, Lord, for the forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thankful, Lord, that we don't have to try to keep our salvation. That our only plea is the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us on the cross. Thankful, Lord, Thank you, Lord, for the remedy through the Lord Jesus. Help us to share it with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.